Hello again, humans. Hello. <laughs> Hello, humans. From a tough shed in my mother's backyard, because it's the quietest place I can find around here. Terrible echo, but relatively quiet considering the rest of the area. Hi. Um, just wanted to say thank you. And uh, I am really enjoying the fuck out of life right now. And I just want to share that. And... <sighs> Take a deep breath and bathe in it because you never know what's around the corner. So, yeah, here it is. Feeling good. Going to soak it up. A uh, couple of things I always forget. We have social media, hellohumans.co. We have a website, hellohumans.co. I have a name, Sam Lamont. And um, this program needs money. Gasp. Oh, no. They're asking for money again. <laughs> Go to www.patreon.com slash hellohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hellohuman. That's how we try to do this audience funded thing, uh, which is kind of seeming like it might work one day. And you can pitch in whatever you want, a dollar a month or $5 a month. And you know what? Like when a businessman says, I want to make a ton of money. Like nobody bats an eye. But when an artist is like, I want to make money, we're all like, shame on you, creative. How dare you? Um, I want this program to have all the money it needs to be awesome. I want this company, Hello Humans, to have all the money it needs to try and make new content that might be awesome. And I want me to have all the money I need to live comfortably. And everyone who is a part of this project, Meg, Jamie, um, I want, I want to be able to compensate them and for them to also make money, uh, for helping out. So, you know what? I used to have a lot of shame about the whole money thing and fuck that shamelessly shaking it down. Uh, but everything's always going to remain free. So if you can't or don't want to pitch in, uh, don't, don't sweat it. Everything you could ever possibly need to know is written in the show notes, the podcast description the written thing that accompanies the podcast wherever you are listening to this. And so if I ever get links wrong or things wrong or you ever forget, oh my gosh, how can I help out? Where can I, you know, do blah, blah, blah or whatever. It's all there. And I uh, just wanted to, today's episode's on being an artist. So I just wanted to shout out to two artists who I love, who coincidentally are both out of Nashville, Tennessee. And one is Tori, who's a wonderful poet. Her Instagram is notes on the way. I realized just now that I don't know her last name, but that's not important because her poetry is awesome. Her Instagram's notes on the way. I'm imagining her website is notesontheway.com. But if it isn't, the correct link will be in the podcast description. And another one is singer songwriter Mercy Bell. Her Instagram, I think, is Mercy Bell. And if it isn't, the correct one is in the podcast description. And uh, I've been listening to her songs while I'm on the road. And um, that's it. Okay, on to the episode. Let me set the scene real quick. You're at like a cocktail party and you just realize now that the shirt you bought just for this event doesn't fit you quite right. You probably should have asked for help or brought a friend. You have that anxiety sweat that like, no matter how many times you wipe your hands on your pants, they just continually stay wet. And you don't even want to lift your arms up because who knows how bad the armpit situation is anyway you're walking around and now you know what okay stop 
I've I've only been to like one cocktail party in my life, and I'm pretty sure me and my hand tattoos aren't getting invited to many more. So same everything, but instead of a cocktail party, you're at like a super cool industry event. And I don't go to industry events, but mostly because I'm not invited or don't even know where to look for those things. But I imagine that's like more plausible these days. Okay, so you're walking around. Everyone in your mind is like perceived to be someone really important and you got to be careful because they can all make or break your career. So you make your way over to the food table, right? Because the food table is always home base. If you didn't know that, food table is always home base. And now you and your newly acquired cured meats and cheeses end up actually in a conversation with a group of people and you're talking, oh, hey, yeah, that's cool. What do you do? And of course, they're like overlord of your industry and own a magazine and uh, also like put on this event. Actually, they're the ones responsible for the event. And they're like, oh, yeah, cool. What do you do? (laughs) And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm insert your creative field here. And of course, they say, where would I have seen your work? Or who's your publisher? Or what gallery do you show with? Or any of these things that have really little to do with you as an artist. And even if you have a great answer to those questions, you have you have credentials. Um, and you're like, I'm number one on the New York Times bestseller, bitch. Mic drop. Uh, it's still a strange way that we interact with artists in our society where The number of followers you have on social media determines whether you get published or shown in a gallery. Um, Not all the time, but that's a a common thing I've heard. It's that that's why you should follow us on social media right now. So our guests publicists think that we're awesome and worth their guest time. And I got way off topic. And so today's conversation is with a personal hero of mine, Julia Cameron. Her book, The Artist Way, found me at just the right time. It's a book I believe you should have in your studio. It's a great read cover to cover. It's also a great read just flipping to a random page. And Julia herself has walked the walk. She's written, I think, 40 plus books. She's uh, written musicals, directed uh, movies, endless. She's been fearless in just expressing herself creatively, creatively. And um, in this new chapter where I am rebuilding, regrouping, kind of feeling like uh, reinvigorated, revisiting the artist way and actually revisiting this conversation I had before this uh, new chapter is really monumental to me. And so without further ado, here's a conversation with a personal hero of mine, Julia Cameron. Julia, thank you for having us and in, inviting me into your home. And, You're very uh, welcome. This is a, a real treat for me. Like I mentioned earlier, I found your book, The Artist Way, five years ago, and it was just at the right time. And so it's really a pleasure to finally get to meet you. Thank you. I call the book The Bridge. I feel like people encounter it when they're ready to expand. Well, that happened to me. Yeah, I just ended up, it just came across my desk and it was it happened to be at exactly when I needed it. So just to start us off to people who aren't familiar with you, who are you and how'd you get here where we are now? Well, that's a big question. It is. All right. I'm Julia Cameron uh, and I am the author of a book called The Artist's Way, which is, I think, a support kit for artists. And I came to write it 
um, because I felt like artists were mistreated, and it was actually sort of a manifesto. And I wrote it and said, we have dignity, treat us well, let us create freely, let us find our way. And it was the result of my years of work as an artist. It was sort of a distillate of everything that I had learned. Perfect. I love the book, obviously. I love how you started with letting yourself even call yourself an artist. Because I I think that's a huge part where people don't know, oh, do I have to show in a gallery to be an artist? There's a lot of people who I feel like don't feel like they have the the right to call themselves an artist because maybe they're moonlighting or just doing it for fun. Well, I think we have a mythology that says there are only a few real artists. And people who aspire to creativity find themselves feeling like, if I'm not making my living fully as an artist, I'm not a real artist. So I think this is very American, the idea that we have to be paid uh, in order for something to be worthwhile. And so if someone writes a novel, you don't say, hooray, that's wonderful, you wrote a novel. Instead, people say, is it getting published? Yeah. Because the paycheck is always what validates the work. So I wanted to undo some of that mythology and say, the work is what validates the work. Yeah. When you meet a young artist, what do you tell them as just a place to start? Because often there's pressures to not take that path because it's not necessarily, it doesn't have built-in security. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. It's genuinely a hard path to take. Well, I tell people to do morning pages. I recently had dinner with a young screenwriter who had made his living in New York as a political writer, and he was moonlighting and using other people's names with his writing under it. And so I said to him, well, I feel like you're sort of caught at a wall where you're not sure that you have the right to be a writer because you're no longer getting paid for it. You're writing for love. And I said, now what I need you to do is get up in the morning, go to the page, and put on the page your dreams, hopes, aspirations, frustrations. Use the page to sort of ventilate where you are. I'm curious. I just want to back up a tiny bit. When in your life did you personally decide, you know what, I'm an artist. I'm meant to create and start the journey. Well, I think I was lucky. I came from a large family, and everybody in my family made art. And my parents never said, oh, darling, don't you think you might need something to fall back on? Instead, there was the assumption that what we were making was worthwhile. So I was, as a 12-year-old, writing small stories. As an 18-year-old, I was writing and publishing poems. As a 21-year-old, I was moving on to short stories. And from short stories, I my career took a, a sudden turn, and I began writing for the Washington Post. Mm. Nice. And in the early stages where it is about 
figuring out where you fit in, where art fits into your professional or monetary life. What was the the process of transitioning into it being, I guess, more of a career rather than just a hobby? I think it was because I had a passion for writing and I had a certain amount of arrogance. So I would read what people wrote and think, oh, I can do better than that. (laughs) And then I would try and I usually could do better than that. And the doors started to swing open. And this is where I believe Joseph Campbell is so right when he says that when we move in the direction of our bliss, we are helped by a thousand unseen helping hands. So I believe that there is sort of a spiritual path that we intuit. And as we pursue our dreams, our dreams in turn pursue us. And were there moments where the self-doubt or the critic came into play? And I guess when or if it did, how did you keep going? I know a lot of really great artists that at some point just decided, I got to give up. And I'd love to know what keeps people going in this direction. Well, I think what kept me going was vanity. I didn't want to quit. I told the Washington Post, I'm a writer. They said, we hope you don't think you're a reporter. And I said, I'm a writer. And I made a distinction for myself about doing art. And I found that I had a little job at the post of opening mail. And I came along uh, one night and read the section for the next day and didn't like it. And so I told my boss, it's, <laughs> it's no good. And he said, well, if you think you can do better. And then he went out to dinner and I wrote my first piece of journalism. Wonderful. And how do you keep belief in that this is your purpose? I think for me now, I find when I meet a, a young person who has used the tools that I get excited. And there's always the same sentence, your book changed my life. And I say, oh, no, you changed your life. You did the work. And then they'll say, I used your book, and now I'm a novelist. (laughs) Or I used your book, and now I'm auditioning again. Or I used your book, and I've been submitting my work to galleries for the first time. I think this is where I believe that we connect to a higher power, that we have an intuition or a calling that we hear and we maybe try to ignore because we think, oh, dear God, I'm going to be broken crazy. And what I have told people is, no, you may be solvent and sane. Yeah, I, I believe that that little voice of the muse is so quiet, at least for me. It's such a soft speaker, and it requires getting quiet myself and and listening. Yeah, I've noticed that when I've had times of just getting quiet and stopping the madness of of all my responsibilities and all this stuff, that there is this tiny little voice that'll just say, keep going, (laughs) you know? Keep going, you're enough. Yeah. And uh, it definitely helps that my mom's kind of family motto for us is we never give up. 
you know. Right. Yeah. If you start something, even if it's terrible, finish it. And then you don't have to show anyone. But just finish it as a commitment to yourself. Right. The artist way is really practical, which speaks to me, you know, where it's not too abstract. It's really, I found it as a really terrible bedside book because I would just get energized, you know? Uh And so I think of it more as like a a book in the studio when you need to pick me up. It actually took me a year to read because I would read 10 or 20 minutes and I would have to get into action. It was very, the book is filled with energy. When it comes to tools like tools for artists and i i love the way you called it weapons for artists in the book what are the most important things to remember to cling to and to use in your favor what are they yeah well if you look over there you see that journal that's a morning pages journal and i've been doing morning pages for 30 years and what i have found is that they do lead me for example I had been writing them about 15 years, and I asked in the pages, what shall I do next? I was sort of at a sticking point. And I heard, you will be writing radiant songs. And I thought, oh, damn it. If I were musical, I'd know it. And the pages repeated, you will be writing radiant songs. So two weeks later, I was up in the Rocky Mountains sitting by a creek trying in a sort of half-assed way to meditate. (laughs) And all of a sudden I heard, My green heart is filled with apples. Your dark face is filled with stars. I am the one that you've forgotten. You are the one my heart desires. And I thought, oh my God, it's a song. And that led me forward into writing musicals. And I spent 10 years writing music. You're very cross-disciplined. And, you know, I feel most comfortable sculpting or working in the kind of three-dimensional world. And I was curious about when you transitioned from, say, writing to filmmaking Mm -hmm. to composing, how do you start the process when, of course, you're going to start badly, you know, Mm -hmm. and and you're going to have this period where it's very frustrating because you then have to honor the art form, which means making mistakes and making stuff that's not presentable or... Well, I think I believe that in order to create, we must be willing to create badly. And that's something that I say in the book, that creative success is built on creative failure, and that very often... We talk ourselves out of beginning something because we look at the master works of people who have been working in the art form for a long time. I'm thinking now of George Lucas. If you've ever seen his early films, <laughs> that you just want to say, oh, George, why not try barbering? <laughs> uh, and yet he went on to make Star Wars. And I think that... When I was teaching in Chicago, I was teaching in an academic setting, and I said to our faculty members, let's show the students our bad films. (laughs) I love that assignment. And they said, oh, Julia, they'll never respect us. And I said, no, they will respect us. This is how they'll learn. And so what I found was that the faculty was unwilling to expose themselves 
as fellow creatives and that the um, great directors were more than willing to expose themselves. Yeah. So what comes up to me is you touched on Joseph Campbell and my favorite work is The Hero's Journey. Mm -hmm. And with showing your underbelly and showing your work that's not the next masterpiece, I think there's something, it's such a gift to everyone who receives it because they realize that the great artists don't just sit down and produce amazing work. I mean, they might have, you know, the raw talent, but, and you wrote a memoir that talked about part of your hero's journey, which was this really dark time. Me as well. I mean, I wouldn't be an artist had I not completely destroyed my life with drugs and alcohol and got sober. And that was my connection to art. That was the point to where I finally felt that calling that was getting stuff down. And I was curious, A, what gave you the courage to share that with the world, which I think is a huge gift. I think it's such a huge gift to show that side. And what was the hero's journey to refining yourself and getting through it and coming out the other end? Well, in my 20s, I wrote out of a sense of ego. When I was doing journalism, I was always trying to be the most brilliant, the most clever, the most insightful. Uh, and I would be very disappointed if people didn't think I was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And in order to try to be brilliant, I used alcohol and drugs, as you were saying you did. And when I turned 29, it became clear that I couldn't go on writing that way. So I found myself thinking, I need to find a way to write that is free. I had mentors who said to me, why don't you try and let a higher power write through you? And I thought, what if he doesn't want to? <laughs> <laughs> but I tried it. And they said to put a little sign up by my desk, okay, God, I'll take care of the quantity. You take care of the quality. And so I started to write in a different way where I wasn't trying to reach on high and be brilliant. I was trying instead to take down what wanted to be said. And I found that I found a path of service. And The Artist's Way was essentially born out of a desire to serve. Yeah, it's definitely not an ego book. I mean, it's 100% a toolkit. I was curious in the artist process, especially when you're just trying to write what's coming out of you or coming to you, how do you combat that perfectionism that almost never wants you to finish? It always wants you to revise and revise and know it's not quite right. And part of being an artist means finishing, at mm -hmm. some point finishing. And I was wondering, when do you know when it's gone too far, when it's gone into the, this is not helpful, this is actually just kind of the cruel ego inside of me that wants it to be something that people receive rather mm -hmm. than something that's just supposed to come out the way it is? Well, I think that the question of perfectionism is central to what keeps us from being artists. And perfectionism is when you rewrite the paragraph over and over again till it's gibberish. <laughs> uh, or you are making a drawing and you redraw the chin line 
over and over again. And so I have a whole essay on perfectionism, and I believe we need to, to know, to listen to the voice that says it's good enough. I think that perfectionism would have us believe it's never good enough. Mm-hmm. And this is where morning pages come in. If you write pages every day and there's no wrong way to do them, then you will be writing and your critic's voice will speak up and will say, oh, Sam, <laughs> you're so petty. Oh, Sam, you know, and start scolding you. And as you hear that critical voice, you say to it, thank you for sharing. And you keep right on writing pages. And this is a transferable skill so that when you're making a piece of art and the critic's voice speaks up, you have learned to, you have learned to say to it, thank you for sharing. Speaking of criticism, I mean, we were just talking about kind of being critical with yourself, but part of being an artist if you want to be a working artist, part of it means sharing it with people. Other people have to see it. Mm-hmm. And it means putting yourself out there, risking criticism. But before you can even get to criticism, you have to face a fear of either criticism or, or looking stupid. And there's a point to where you need to share it and you need to share it with publications or galleries. And there's especially times when you don't get the feedback you want and your fear is kind of realized. But what are the the tools you cling to when it comes to working with fear and moving on even though you're afraid? Well, I think there are a couple of points here. Uh, one thing is that you need to collect a believing mirror. And a believing mirror is somebody who looks at your work and sees its potential and sees what you're trying to do and it always mirrors back to you your strength and possibility. And when you are showing fledgling work, you work over time to cultivate these positive voices. So I have believing mirrors that have been reading me for 30 years. They will say, it's good, but the ending is a little bit wobbly. And I'll hear, it's good, and I'll hear the ending is a little bit wobbly. And because I have come to trust them as a source of feedback, I will go back in and try and work on the wobbly ending. I use humor. I wrote a crime novel, and it got 19 wonderful reviews. And then in the New York Times, it had a review that said, What is a new age guru doing writing in this genre? So I was crushed and the review killed the book. What I found was that I needed to find a way to come back. And what I did was I wrote a little piece of doggerel in humor. This goes out to Mr. Bill Kent who must feel awful the way that he spent his review reviewing Carl Jung instead of on the work I'd done. And the minute I began to have humor, I began to have my power back. So I use humor to coax me into creating again. Oh, I love that. 
not to take it so seriously. Right. And another thing to realize is that very often critics are blocked artists. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a great quote by Theodore Roosevelt on criticism uh, where it basically says, you know, I'm paraphrasing huge, but it basically says to the doers, the critic has no business saying that the strong man isn't doing enough because he stumbled and that the doers have this amazing opportunity to at best know what victory feels like and at worst know what it feels like to try and not do it. But the critics are in this limbo of never knowing victory or defeat. I love that. Maybe I'll include it in the notes. Part of the creative process means there are times when you're on fire and you're in the zone and there are times when you're just stuck, just totally stuck. And for me, it feels like my connection to the muse, as I call it, is blocked. And uh, I was wondering, when you get that, what do you try to remember? Or what are the the physical practices that you do uh, these days to get past it? Okay, now we're talking about an artist's way tool I call blasting through blocks. And what that is, is you write down all of your angers, all of your fears, all of your resentments about the piece of work that you're stuck on. And then you write, what do I stand to gain by not finishing this piece of work? (laughs) And usually it's freedom from criticism. So you write these things out, and then you call up a believing mirror and you say, can I read you what I'm afraid of? Usually it's the same fears over and over again. Things like, I'm afraid it's not good. I'm afraid it's good, but people aren't going to know it's good. I'm afraid that if I finish this, I'll be judged. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid that if I don't finish this, I'll never move on to another piece of work. So you do the blasting through blocks, and then you sit down and you go forward. And blasting through blocks is remarkably effective. I love that. I need to highlight that chapter because I get blocks all the time. There's a huge desire of any creative to make a living with it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like not everybody is going to get the chance to make a living with it. Mm-hmm. But part of it means that you still have to do whatever is paying your bills. And then on top of that, also create. And it means like you can get home from an eight-hour day and then have to somehow muster the energy to work for four hours. And where do you find the energy to put the time in, to grind it out? And it means putting other things like uh, social gatherings aside. So your question is, where do you find the energy? Yeah, when you're tired and when you're exhausted and you want to go to bed. Well, again, this is where writing comes in. You know, I write in the morning, and then at night, when I'm tired, I try to write again. And I listen for guidance, and I say, LJ, little Julie, LJ, what should I do next? And then I listen, and I write down what I hear, and it's frequently a direction. For example, what I'm going through right now Uh, is something that I haven't been through in many years, which is that I withdrew a book from publication. I worked on it for a year, and then one night when I couldn't sleep, I thought, 
the book is bad. <laughs> and I looked at the book the next morning, and sure enough, the book was bad. <laughs> and so I wrote, what should I do next? And I heard, little one. The voice of my higher power is often very gentle. Little one, you are not intended to write this book. Withdraw it from publication and pay back the publisher. So I thought, oh my God, a year's work. But what I did was call the publisher and say, the book is bad. It will ruin my reputation and yours. <laughs> so I'd like to withdraw it from publication and pay you back. So that's what I did. And then that left me without an assignment. Uh, and it had been years since I had been without an assignment. And what I did was start taking longer walks. So I would get up in the morning and write. Then I would go about my business day. I would go for a walk. I would come home, and I would go back to the page, and I would try to capture something that was fleeting. So last night, I was tired, and it was about 11 o'clock at night, but I hadn't tried to work. So I went to the page and said, what should I do now? And the page said, rest, relax, trust. And I did try to rest, relax, and trust. And it brought me to today. And I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I'm Oh, I'm loving the answer, though, even if it's <laughs> not to the question I asked. I think it is. And so you're here kind of with a blank slate, which is a beautiful opportunity to have. So is the marching orders of the higher power to just listen and capture and it will come? Or The marching orders are you're on track. You are not off kilter. Rest, relax, and trust. And what I did, which was a product of talking to a believing mirror of mine named Gerard Hackett, I said to him, Gerard, I'm miserable. I don't have enough laughter in my life. I'm taking everything very, very seriously. And he said, if you want laughter in your life, you need to read Armistead Maupin, which was San Francisco in the 70s. So I sat down, and he had, Maupin had written nine books, nine novels. And I sat down and read my way through all nine novels. And then he wrote a memoir. And I sat down and read my way through the memoir. And when I was finished with that, I felt like, okay, now try and write. And I had just been deliberately filling the well. And one of the things that I think we should probably talk about is that when you work flat out, you need to take artist dates to fill the well. That is, you need to do something festive and solo that enchants you. And when you fill the well, that means, you know, when we make art, it's an image-using process. We have an inner interior well, like an ecosystem. And when we're working flat out, 
were fishing images out of the well. And sometimes people will say, Julia, it was going so well, and now it's dried up. And I will say, well, it's dried up because it was going so well. So you need to take an artist's state and refill the well consciously, keeping your ecosystem well stocked uh, so that when you reach for an image, you find that there's one readily available. Is the artist's state just a day you give yourself and commune with nature or... What do you prescribe as an artist date when you are telling someone you need to take one? That they do something that's enchanting and interesting for themselves. So it may be connecting with nature. It could be going to a children's bookstore. It could be going to a card shop. It could be taking a walk. It could be going to a neighborhood that you've never been to, eating a cuisine that you don't normally eat. So the trick with an artist date is you do it alone, and it's only a couple of hours. And when you take an artist date, what happens is you come in contact with the still small voice. Artist dates amplify marching orders. Mm. So we're audience-funded, and one of our patrons actually asked about the artist date and wanted to know what your most memorable one was. I think it was going to a glassblower's studio. I sort of crept in the door, and she said, would you like to try? (laughs) And I was, like, terrified. You had a rod. You had a blob of melted glass at the end of the rod. The oven that they fired the glass in was, like, 1,300 degrees And she said, now dip the color in a color you would like to see more of. So she had powders laid out on a pastel palette. So I picked red. And then I picked fuchsia. (laughs) And what ended up happening was, with her guidance, I made a paperweight. And I didn't get burned. And the paperweight sits in my study. So cool. You got a keepsake out of it too. Yes. Another patron was curious about looking back on past work and just having that feeling like you want to destroy it because it's not as good as your current work or you don't feel like it reflects the quality of work that you want to do. And what's your relationship to your your past work that like uh, your bad movies and work that you feel like, well, this isn't to the quality I, I would like it to be? Well, I feel like my past work usually is fine. And my current work is where my perfectionist raises its head. I have named my perfectionist Nigel. And Nigel is a gay interior decorator. And I can never do work that pleases Nigel. And I recently, a couple of years ago, wrote a book Uh, And every time I would sit down to write, Nigel would say, oh, no one's going to want to read this. And I kept on writing. And every day I would face Nigel, and every day Nigel would be sarcastic and nasty. And what happened is I finished the book because I have the rule, finish it, just like you do. So I finished the book, but when I turned it into my publisher, 
Nigel spoke through me, and I said, here's the book. It might not be any good. And my publisher said, I'll be the judge of that. You've been listening to Nigel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my mom had a question for you, which was, when it comes to finishing, how do you get past that second draft hump where you're you're sick of it, and then there's the the less fun jobs of like really polishing it up and getting it there? And what do you do to get past that second draft hump? I do blasting through blocks. Mm-hmm. I do showing the early work to a few kind believing mirrors. I go for walks, and I make a gratitude list. Hmm. And so I will say, okay, I love my house. I love the deli. I love the walk. I love the little dog. I love the cat next door. I love dark chocolate. I love the Bodines. And I list 50 things that I love. What happens is that consolidates an inner core for me of I am the person who loves these 50 things. And usually when I am able to stand with a list, I find myself trusting a little bit more confidently in my second draft process. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yes, yes. On the other end, I'm curious, when you create something that is just fantastic and well-received, like the artist way, I mean, the artist way has helped, I don't even know how many thousands or or millions, but it certainly, I have firsthand experience of it. There's got to be that feeling of of how on earth do I follow this up? You know, Um, Mm -hmm. this might be the great thing I do with my life. And I was curious for you if there was any of that. And if so, how did you allow yourself to keep creating, even though it might not just completely build off it and have the momentum and be twice as good, but where's the the process of following up those big pieces that really feel like, wow, this might be the masterpiece of my lifetime. Now what? Mm-hmm. I've written 40 books. I've written them by trying to write down what I hear. So the process of writing them has been more like taking dictation mm. than like thinking something up. And sometimes I find I myself go back to the artist's way yeah, and look at it. And Right to Write is a book that I love. And it talks about how to let yourself trust to write. Because one of the things that's ironic for me is some of my best work has never seen the light of day. I'm a very good playwright, and I have had the experience of sitting in a theater, watching a play come to life, and then stepping forward for the Q&A. I recently wrote a play, which is called The Animal in the Trees, and it's about two poets And the woman has manic depression and alcoholism. And the man is the stalwart, calming influence. But she finds that if she takes the medicine that clears up her manic depression, 
she doesn't write. Mm. He finds that if she doesn't take the medicine, she's so dramatic that their lives are torn apart. So I wrote this play, and I found myself thinking, uh, people are going to say Julia Cameron of The Artist's Way is negative. <laughs> but I believe the play is about darkness, and we have to embrace our darkness as well as our light. Yeah. And so maybe people will say, oh, Julia Cameron of The Artist's Way knows darkness. Yeah. Yeah, darkness, uh, when I hear it from other people, is really therapeutic to me because I have mental illness and uh, I've seen some some dark days. And so it's so nice to know, yeah, I'm going through it too. Or yeah, I tried this medication. I had a terrible reaction to it. You know, I've had those medications that did not work for me. You know, it just totally disconnected me. Mm-hmm. And it was frustrating because the thing it was trying to cure, it worked in this one specific antidepressant I'm thinking of, but I didn't have that connection right. to source. Or, so I love to, you've been really generous with your time, but I love to end this program with, if you could send a message to young Julia Cameron or to a young artist who's just starting out, what would the message be that you just want them to hear? There is a creative power in the universe of which you are a part. If you try to create work, there will be a path for it. Do not be discouraged. Do not be frightened. Do not worry. Instead, seek the help of the inner voice that will come to you through morning writing. If you find yourself listening closely enough, you will be led. Beautiful. And you still do a lot of work helping artists and doing events and classes. Where can people uh, stay in touch and find out what you're up to? JuliaCameronLive.com. Thank you so much for your time. That's it for today's episode. I don't know about you guys, but in my personal life, I am feeling the energy come back and the creative spirit really wants to express itself. And so I'm excited. I'm excited for the future, future episodes. I think um, we're about to see me hit my stride again. And so thanks for listening. I hope you and your own creative endeavors or life are just going wonderfully. This podcast is produced by me and Meg Schmidt. And we get sound help from Jamie Morris. And until next time, I hope you have a great day. If you haven't already, check out the show notes. There's awesome ways to help and links to our guests and um, links to today's shout outs. All right, that's it. Love you guys. Uh, Until next time.